Good morning. Merry Christmas Eve. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. Our text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 39, a passage containing a list of David's mighty men, uh, surely a very popular Christmas sermon passage. Start by reading the text, and I'll ask for your forgiveness up front uh, for all the names that I am about to terribly mispronounce, uh, but hear the word of the Lord. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshib Bashabeth, a Tachamanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three men, three mighty men, was Eliar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two Ariels of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Elika of Herod, Helez the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mebunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai of Netopha, Heleb, the son of Bena of Netopha, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Parathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, 
Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbai, of Meekah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Garib, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Well, we here at First Baptist have been making our way through the book of Second Samuel, and in recent weeks we've been in this epilogue to the book that spans from chapters 21 through 24, and this morning we just so happen to be in the fifth of those six passages, this passage about David's mighty men. There's a few short narratives about some of their brave acts, and then a roster of their names. It's a passage that, uh, similar to the mirror passage from the epilogue that we saw just a few weeks ago, you remember those four stories about uh, David's men defeating the Philistine giants? Uh, Similar to that passage, our passage this morning tells us how the success of David, a success that we've read much about in the narrative part of this book, uh, how the success of David was due in large part because of the valiant men who were with him. No man is an island, and King David is no exception. But it's also a passage that, like if we're being honest, uh, at least on a surface reading, may not exactly thrill the soul. Uh, Zalman, the Ahohite, and Maharai of Netopha, it's the kind of passage that, when we're up to it in our Bible reading plans, we're tempted to kind of skim through and gloss over. But we need to remind ourselves once again that this too is the divinely inspired word of God, written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This too is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And so even now, right, like as we look at this text, uh, let's approach it in faith. Let's trust that God will speak through his word, uh, that God will speak to us through this passage. And so with that said, here's how I want to go through this text this morning. First, we'll look at the three, uh, the big three mentioned in verses 8 through 12. Uh, Then we'll look at the three, uh, the other three guys who get the water from Bethlehem in verses 13 through 17. Uh, Then we'll look at the two, Abishai and Benaiah. They get special mention in verses 18 through 23. And then we'll look at the rest. Uh, the rest of the list in verses 24 through 39. So uh, the three, the three, the two, and the rest. So first let's look at the three, and maybe for uh, simplicity, we'll just call them the big three. Uh, They're in verses 8 through 12. uh, Joshib, Basabeth, Eleazar, and Shammah. These are three guys who, uh, even though their names haven't come up at all in the narratives of 1 and 2 Samuel, Uh, These are three guys who are specially recognized by David for their bravery, for their heroics, uh, by their inclusion in this elite group. So first we've got uh, Joshib, Bashabeth, and 
with a name like that. Surely his close friends just called him JB. So we'll call him that. JB, verse 8, wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Now that is not saying that he's got like this really long spear and he speared 800 enemies at once. Uh, It's probably referring to him single-handedly defeating 800 enemies in one battle. Which, if you think about it, is an amazing feat in itself. Like, if you're fighting for the other side, like, this is one guy you don't want to mess with. The second, we've got Eleazar, and he's celebrated here for how he stayed by David's side during a battle against the Philistines when all the other Israelites fled. He stood his ground, presumably for a very long time, until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. Perhaps that's describing how his hand began to cramp around his sword because he'd been using it for so long. Or maybe it's just an expression, like we might say that his sword became an extension of his arm, kind of like if you're familiar with the X-Men, kind of like Wolverine's claws, right? Whatever it is, uh, this man, Eleazar, he is recognized here for his incredible stamina and endurance and his loyalty and bravery on the battlefield. The third, we've got Shammah. Uh, and like Eleazar, he's also remembered for standing his ground against the Philistines when everybody else was too scared to fight. On this particular battle, it seems like the Philistines were trying to raid the Israelites' crops, right? And so this battle takes place, look at verse 11, on a plot of ground full of lentils. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, why in the world would anybody want to risk their lives to defend a plot of lentils? Like having to eat lentils is exactly the kind of thing that you would wish upon your worst enemy. They'd be cursed to eat lentil stew for the rest of their lives, But no, this is not about the lentils. This is primarily about the land on which those lentils grew because that land is the promised land, land that belongs to God, land that God had given to the Israelites, land that Israel was not to cede to pagan enemies like the Philistines. And so Shammah fights for God's land, even if he has to fight alone. That by itself is notable and commendable. But what really sets him apart is that he successfully defends the plot. He strikes down all the Philistines there. And so Shammah, too, attains to the three. And so here you've got these three incredibly brave and heroic soldiers. J.B., Eleazar, Shammah, the three. Three mighty men who weren't afraid to fight alone against many of God's enemies. These guys had the mentality of Jonathan. You remember Saul's son, Jonathan? Once upon a time, he took on by himself a whole contingent of Philistines, and he famously said, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's basically the mentality of these guys. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, even if it's just me fighting all these guys by myself. Point number one, the three. But don't be so wowed by these hero stories that you miss the author's intent here. How exactly was it that these men were able to accomplish these ridiculously amazing acts of heroism? Well, look at what he says at the end of verse 10. 
and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Just in case you weren't paying attention and you missed it the first time, again in verse 12, the Lord worked a great victory. Yes, these men were incredibly brave and loyal, fighting for David and God's kingdom when everybody else fled. Yes, these men accomplished unbelievable feats, with each of them single-handedly defeating many enemies. But don't miss the author's intent. He even repeats himself so that you won't. It was the Lord who brought about the victory. And that's a theme that we've seen in this book. Even David's victories. You remember that catalog of David's military victories from chapter 8? Twice in that chapter, just like he tells us twice here, twice in chapter 8, the narrator tells us what's really going on. Chapter 8, verse 6, and chapter 8, verse 14, have the same exact words, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, that's not only an important point for our theology, so that we can have a a good understanding of the sovereignty of God. It's also a crucial point for our practical day-to-day living for the Lord. Because if we understand that he is the one who is ultimately behind the advancement of his kingdom, that all such victories belong to him, that he's the one who works to bring about the glory of his name, well, then doesn't that free us to, William Carey, attempt great things for God? To live sacrificially? To take risks for the Lord? To do things that in our own strength and with our own resources might seem to be impossible? Yes, God can save my hard-hearted parents. So I will share the gospel with them once again. Yes, God can bring revival in even the most unlikely of places. And so I will go there and preach the gospel. Yes, God can give me the grace that I need to get through even this trial. And so I will persevere for his glory. Point number one, the three. Point number two, the three. Pretty sure you're not supposed to do that in your preaching outlines. Make your points exactly the same. But hey, it's Christmas Eve, right? We can be charitable. Uh, Here in point number two, we're not referring to the big three from point number one. We're referring to another group of three that's mentioned in verses 13 through 17. Uh, This group of three, and I think it's a separate group from the first big three. Uh, We don't know their names, but they're included in the list of the 30 that's mentioned later. Uh, They are recognized here for a specific instance of incredible courage. So let's set the scene. David and his men, they're at the cave of Adullam. Uh, There is a band of Philistines encamped below in the valley of Rephaim. Uh, That could be referring to what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is right after David becomes king over all Israel. And they go in and they take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. It says in chapter 5 verse 18 that the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So maybe 
chronologically, that's what this is referring to. But the Philistines aren't just in the valley of Raphaim. O little town of Bethlehem, still we don't see you lie, because the Philistines had taken the town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, of course, is not just where Jesus the Savior would one day be born, Merry Christmas, but it's also, not unrelatedly, David's hometown. And so as David and his men, they're in the cave, they're thinking about what to do next, and David says aloud, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem. Now, it's not entirely clear what he means there. Is that, is it that there is something special about the water of Bethlehem? Uh, That's why those Fiji water bottles are so expensive, right? Because there's something special about the water from Fiji. Uh, Is is there something about the mineral content or the pH of the Bethlehem water that made him desire it? Or maybe he was just being nostalgic. He wants some of the water that he used to drink growing up. I get that. I grew up in Queens, and the only pizza that we ever ate was AJ's Pizza. It was a staple of my childhood, and in my adult years, I would often think, oh, that someone would get me a slice to eat from AJ's Pizza on Austin Street. And before any of you sneak out to attempt that, you should know that AJ's Pizza has since then been closed. Very sad. And so maybe there was something about uh, nostalgia, wanting the water that he grew up drinking. Maybe there was something special about the Bethlehem water. I think there's more to it than either of those. I think the wish for Bethlehem water is an expression of longing for Bethlehem and all the promised land, for that matter, to be under Israel's control. Because the only reason that David can't just go and get water from his hometown is because that part of the promised land was under Philistine occupation. Kind of like if I was away from home for a while and I said, oh wish I could just sleep on my own pillow. Well, it's not the pillow itself that I want. There's nothing really that special or or nice about my pillow. It's that sleeping on my pillow represents the comforts of being at home. Well, in the same way, drinking the water of Bethlehem represents Israel being fully established in the promised land or something that God said he would bring about. And so this might be an expression kind of longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. Oh, that God would fulfill his promises to us to deliver us from the hand of the Philistines and establish his kingdom in the promised land. Whatever it is that he means here, three of his mighty men, they see this as an opportunity to encourage their king. And so they go and they get him some water from that well in Bethlehem. So how's that for loyalty? He doesn't command them. He doesn't even ask them. He just kind of wishes something out loud, and they're on it. These guys would do anything for the king. How they got the water? Well, wouldn't you just love some details here? Did they sneak in under the cover of night, or was this kind of like a brazen daytime thing? Verse 16 says they broke through the camp of the Philistines, and so that makes it seem like they had to fight their way in. Was it like two of them fought against the Philistines and the other guys fetching water from the well? 
How do they transport it back without it spilling, right? It's awfully hard to run with a full bucket of water. Lots of questions remain unanswered, but this much we know for sure. They come back with the water, and this isn't a a quick walk to the water cooler. This is 25 miles round trip. They go to great lengths to get this water. What does David do with this water that almost cost these men their lives? He takes it, and he pours it out on the ground. Now, initially, our reaction of reading this is, seriously? Like, if three of you overheard me saying that I wanted water, and you went to, I don't know, CVS on 77th Street, and you bought me a bottle of Poland Spring, and then I just poured it out on the street in front of you, surely you would be insulted. But this, I mean, these guys are literally risking their lives. They're going 25 miles round trip to get that water. How much more should they be insulted? But the text explains what's going on here. He poured it out to the Lord. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. And so it's not that he's unthankful. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. It's that he's so thankful. He's so amazed. He's so moved that his men would risk their lives to do that. And he acknowledges that he is not worthy of such great devotion. Only God is worthy of such devotion. He's the only one to whom such a costly offering should be made. And so instead of drinking it, David pours it out as a drink offering to the Lord. And in that way, he levels up the honor for these men because they intended to serve King David. But David turns it into them worshiping the Lord, an infinitely higher calling. So he doesn't insult their efforts. No, he honors their sacrifice, all the more by giving it to God instead of taking it for himself. Point number two, the three. I think there's a couple of lessons that we can learn here. First, we're reminded that the only one worthy of ultimate glory is God himself. David here refuses to receive this water simply because he feels that for him to receive it would be for him to take honor that belongs to God alone. And so he redirects it to God. In the same way, uh, there may be things that come our way. Maybe it's not water from Bethlehem, but maybe it's praise or credit or recognition or admiration. Uh, Things that we can be thankful for, but ought in humility to redirect to God. Thanks be to God. Praise God for his work, like what he is doing. Glory to God. That's a lesson that we who are prone to self-importance and self-referencing can learn here from King David. A second, we're reminded, when we read stories like this of incredible devotion and risk-taking for the king, that we as followers of King Jesus are called to do the same. After all, King Jesus, as the eternal 
son of God, very God of very God, he humbled himself by being born in the likeness of men. Merry Christmas. And by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died for our sins so that we might be forgiven. He gave us his perfect righteousness so that we could live eternally. And so given all that he's done for us, well, is there anything that we, as his people, ought not to be willing to do for him? Think about what Paul says about his ministry to the Philippians. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, just like this Bethlehem water was poured out to the Lord as a drink offering, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And that kind of all-out devotion isn't just reserved for the apostles. Romans 12 says that all Christians should think of their lives in the same way as a sacrifice and offering to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Christianity is not primarily about our devotion to Jesus. It's about Jesus' devotion to us, right? That he came to seek and save lost sinners like us. But should that not then stir up in our hearts a desire to give our lives for him? To go to the wells of Bethlehem for his namesake? I think Isaac Watts put it well. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Point number two, the three. And point number three, the two. This might be the most confusing outline ever because point number two was the three and point number three is the two. Uh, by the two, I'm referring to the two members of the 30 who are singled out here in verses 18 through 23, Abishai and Benaiah. Now, I'm not going to say too much about Abishai here because... Well, we've already spoken about him a lot in the narratives of 2 Samuel. Uh, he is Joab's brother. He bravely fights against the Ammonites, chapter 10. He leads a third of David's army in the battle against Absalom, chapter 18. He's made into the commander of the entire army in Sheba's rebellion, chapter 20. He saves David, David's life from Ishbi Benob, the Philistine, in chapter 21. I'm sure, he's gotten into some trouble because of his impulsiveness. But overall, right, this guy is an incredibly valuable asset for David. So here we're told that he was recognized as the commander of the 30, even if he doesn't attain to the big three from the beginning of the chapter. The other guy, Benaiah, he is going to come to more prominence in Solomon's reign because Solomon is going to make him the commander of the entire army to replace Joab. But here we have a few stories that show his courage and fortitude and bravery. He strikes down two Ariels of Moab, probably referring to two of their renowned heroes. He kills a lion. I'm sure he got an angry letter from the ASPCA, but don't you love the little details of the Bible? It says he struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Gotta love that. And he, verse 21, he strikes down an Egyptian warrior with the Egyptian warrior's own spear. The ESV calls him an Egyptian 
a handsome man. Other translations have an Egyptian, an impressive man, or a huge Egyptian. I think both of those fit the context a little better than a handsome man, because after all, what does being handsome have to do with how fearsome of an opponent he was? It's kind of like what Hall of Fame baseball player Yogi Berra once said. I'm ugly, so what? I never seen anybody hit with their face. Being handsome has nothing to do with being a great baseball player, and being handsome has nothing to do with being a fearsome Egyptian soldier, the one that Benea struck down. And this Benea, for all his heroic exploits, not only is he a part of 30, but David even sets him over his personal bodyguard. That's not something that you give to any random guy. Point number three, the two. That brings us now to point number four, the rest. So the three, the three, the two, and now the rest. Uh, The rest of the names that were given here in verses 24 through 39. And there's a lot of questions that you can ask about this list here. For example... Why does the parallel list in First Chronicles add a whole bunch of names to the end of this list? Is this list in Second Samuel a list from earlier on in David's reign, and then the list in First Chronicles has additions since then? Or is there something else going on? Or here's a, another question you might ask. How exactly do you get to the number 37 that's referenced at the end? Does that 37 include the big three mentioned at the beginning of the chapter? When it says, verse 32, the sons of Jashin, how many of them were there? And look at verse 37. Is that verse saying that Nahari of Beeroth is the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, or are they two separate people that need to be counted separately? You can see how your answer to all of those questions would affect how you get to the total of 37. But one thing is clear. The 30 definitely includes more than 30 names. And so 30 is probably more a technical name for the group than an exact headcount. It's kind of like the Big Ten Conference in college football. There's 14 teams in the Big Ten, soon to be 18. It's not a technical, uh, sorry, it's not an exact headcount. Rather, it's, a, it's a, a technical name for the group. So lots of questions that you could potentially ask about the list. But rather than getting bogged down in those details, uh, let me finish with four takeaways, uh, four takeaways from this list as a whole. Uh, Takeaway number one, it is good to recognize those who labor for the kingdom. It is good to recognize those who labor for the kingdom. Uh, This list right here is not just a random list of names. It's an honor roll. It's a list honoring those who served King David and thus the kingdom of God. Because remember, David is the Lord's anointed. It's a list honoring those who served King David and the kingdom of God faithfully. And so this list is, just in itself, a reminder to us that it is good to recognize those who labor for the kingdom. That's a principle that the Apostle Paul understood very well, as Romans 16 and Colossians 4 show. And so there is a way, even as the author intends for God to get all of the glory, right? Remember what we said earlier about the big three. There is a way for the Lord to get the ultimate glory, but his instruments, his people to be honored in the process. 
And so, let me as your pastor just apply this point right now to our church body. Now, let me thank all of the brothers who diligently teach the word of God in our church. Just for the care and the diligence that you put into preparation that we as a body might be fed from the word. Thank you, dear deacons of, of member care. Nathan, Winston, Donna, Sean, Irma, Adriana, Christian. You serve our people so well. And thank you, dear deacons of stewardship, our beloved trustees. Thank you, Max, Daniel, Daniel, Leah, Sweet, and Hector. Your tireless efforts to serve our body or so many different ways are not unnoticed. Thank you to all of you who serve on the music team. Thank you for how you use your gifts and your talents to, to help us to sing so joyfully to our God. Thank you to the usher team. You guys stand in the back there every week and you sacrifice so that all of us can have our focus on the word of God. Thank you to the projection team and the sound team. You guys are literally invisible to us down here, but you are so essential. Your labors are so essential to having a smooth service. Thank you to all who serve in our children's ministries, the nursery and the preschool, for how you care for our children so well, for how you teach the youngest among us the gospel of our Lord. Thank you to those of you who invest yourselves in discipling relationships and those of you on the greeting team and those of you who set up the bread and the coffee and those of you involved in various forms of hospitality and those of you who serve the church in so many different ways. The risk in giving specifics is that I can't mention everything and everyone. David only had 37 men to list. I've got dozens more right? I could list in our church. The First Baptist Church, I trust you know that I am thankful for you. And more importantly, God is glorified through your faithfulness. Takeaway number one, it is good to recognize those who labor for the kingdom. Takeaway number two, names are quickly forgotten. Names are quickly forgotten. Look again at this list from verses 24 through 39. I'm going to guess that before this sermon, most of you were familiar with exactly two of these names. You know Asahel, he's Joab's brother, and you know Uriah. Maybe if you're really into Bible trivia or something, maybe you knew a few more of these names. But here's my point. Almost all of these names, even as God has seen fit to include their names in the scriptures— So that 3,000 years later, right, 3,000 years after these men lived, we are here talking about a list of their names, but almost all of them have been completely forgotten to history. Because even if you know the name Parai the Arbite, he's in verse 35, you couldn't tell me a single thing about him. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We're not told anything else about him here. And so within a few generations of this list being written, I'm guessing that nobody remembered anything about Parai the Arbite. 
as great as a warrior as he once was, as faithfully as he served King David, he was completely forgotten. That's because, takeaway number two, names are quickly forgotten. I give this takeaway as a balance to the previous one. Yes, it is good for us to recognize those who labor faithfully for the kingdom, right? We can give glory to God by recognizing how he works through his servants. And so, yes, it is good to be recognized for faithful labor, but if that is our only motivation, like if that's what drives us to service, to be recognized by others, to be seen, to have our names on some kind of list, well, that truly is a vain pursuit because of how quickly names are forgotten. There's another way that this chapter illustrates this same point. And it's even more blatant. Just think about these three guys who go to the well of Bethlehem to get that water. What are their names? We don't know. Who performed that incredible act of devotion, that act of commitment, loyalty to the king? We don't know. But of course, there is one who knows everything that Parai, the Arbite, ever did to faithfully serve King David and the kingdom of God. And the same one knows exactly who those three men were who went and got that water from Bethlehem. And the same one knows exactly what each and every one of us has done for his sake. And if it's his commendation that we seek, well done, good and faithful servant. He never forgets even a little food or a glass of water given in his name. But truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Takeaway number two, names are quickly forgotten. Takeaway number one, it is good to recognize those who labor for the kingdom. Takeaway number two, names are quickly forgotten. Takeaway number three, sin is not easily forgotten. I said earlier that this list in verses 24 through 39, like these are the kinds of verses that maybe we're tempted to quickly skim through. And so your eyes are just scanning the names Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmabeth of Baharim, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, so on and so on. But even the quickest glance through the list is brought to a full stop at the end. That last name, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, that name might as well be in bold caps there because Uriah the Hittite the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the deception of Uriah the Hittite, the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Like that's what set into motion all of the disaster that happens in chapters 12 through 20. But it's not just that his name is mentioned here. It's that his name is mentioned on a list of David's most loyal, committed faithful, devoted warriors. Men who, like the Bethlehem water boys, risked their lives for the king. 
Men who loved David. Men who would do anything for David. That's who Uriah the Hittite was. We saw that even in the narrative in 2 Samuel 11. You remember after the adultery, David's trying to get Uriah to go home to Bathsheba, his wife, and he refuses. Uriah was so loyal to David. He was so committed to David's cause that he refused to go home while everybody else is out there fighting for David's kingdom. Do you see the cruel twist of irony here? The exact kinds of qualities that made Uriah one of David's mighty men. Devotion and loyalty and commitment. Those were the reasons that David killed him. And so even as we scan this list, right, that name, purposefully ending the list perhaps, Uriah the Hittite, it draws our minds right back to David's horrific sin. But take away number three, sin is not easily forgotten. Yes, David has repented of that sin as illustrated so beautifully in Psalm 51. Yes, God put away that sin. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But, 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 the stinging memory of that sin surely came back to David every single time he saw a list of his 37 most committed men. Takeaway number three, sin is not easily forgotten. Which brings us now to takeaway number four, to look to Christ. Takeaway number four, look to Christ. Because yes, takeaway number three, sin is not easily forgotten. I'm sure there were many days, even in David's old age, that the memories of Uriah the Hittite just haunted him. How could they not? After all the destruction and disaster that the consequences of that sin brought on his life and his family and his kingdom, how could they not? Every time he looked at Amnon's grave, every time he remembered his son Absalom, every time he saw his daughter Tamar's brokenness, every time he thought about his kingdom's instability, he could trace it all back to one name, Uriah the Hittite. In the same way, perhaps there is a Uriah the Hittite in your life. Whether it be a specific person or specific incident, something that you once did, maybe just who you were in general. Like you, even now, as a Christian, you look back on that and you are heartbroken. Perhaps at times, you're even haunted by that past sin. Dear friend, let me point you to the one to whom King David looked. The one who's coming we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus Christ. Jesus who... In a beautiful irony that only sovereign God could engineer, Jesus, who was descended from 
according to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the wife of Uriah. A Jesus who lived the perfect life that King David never could. There was never a Uriah the Hittite blot on Jesus' record because there was never any blot on Jesus' sinless, perfect life. A Jesus who, like King David, had a big three and had loyal and committed followers, but when the going got tough for David, JB and Eliezer and Shammah, they were right with him. When the going got tough for Jesus, when he was about to take upon himself the sins of the world, suffer the wrath of God on behalf of his people, well, you'll remember his disciples, even the big three, Peter, James, and John. They all left him. But Jesus, who, through his death on our behalf, through his victorious resurrection, he secures our names in a book that's far better than even a list of the mightiest men. Luke 10, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. This Jesus has come. This Jesus has died for sinners like us so that even the worst of us, even the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul, can be forgiven of our sins, uh, the most haunting of our sins nailed to the cross where we bear it no more so that there might be now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friend, if you are here with us this morning and you are not a Christian, the good news of Christmas and the good news of Good Friday and the good news of Easter Sunday, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus stands to save you today. And no matter what you've done, no matter what's in your past, no matter what kind of Uriah the Hittites you have in your life, if you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation, you too can be saved. Takeaway number four, look to Christ. Because this passage, this list of names, this is they which testify of Jesus. And so I implore you to look to him. In Christ, your worst failures, the worst sins that you've committed, the Uriah the Hittites, right? those sins that are not so easily forgotten either by us or by others, well, he has paid for all of that sin so that God might look at you, his child, and say, I will remember your sins no more. That's the gospel. Takeaway number four, look to Christ. Father, we thank you for this passage and how this too points us to your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that as a result of our time in this passage, that we, your people, would look to Christ, that those who are not would look to him for salvation. We pray this in his name.